President Joe Biden's pick to run the Census Bureau has outlined to Congress steps he would take to improve workforce morale. Robert Santos says census employees worked under what he called harrowing conditions last year, in some cases 80-hour work weeks to get ahead of the pandemic delays. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee also heard from Biden's pick to run the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, an agency without a permanent director for more than four years. For more on these nominees, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Jory, that must have been quite a hearing. Yeah, we had quite the rundown of who Robert Santos is and what to expect here. He comes from the Urban Institute. He's currently their vice president and chief methodologist, and he has some experience with federal advisory committees with regards to statistical agencies. He's served on a census advisory committee as well as the CDC's Health Statistics Board of Scientific Counselors. And if he is confirmed, he would be the first person of color to permanently leave the agency. And really, he would be coming into the Bureau at a pretty critical time here. He would be tying up some of the loose ends with the 2020 count, and he would be around long enough to really set the foundation for the 2030 count. So if confirmed, he would have a lot on his plate. All right. And a lot of the hearing concentrated on the workforce, workforce issues with the census. What would he do about the census workforce? Well, he was pointing out just all of the circumstances your employees went through last year. He was saying that they worked under some pretty harrowing conditions, in some cases working seven days a week, putting in 80-hour work weeks, just because of all of the complications from the COVID-19 pandemic. And When you look at all the court battles the Bureau was in the middle of and natural disasters, the Bureau could not catch a break in any kind of circumstance here. And so Santos says that if confirmed, he would work with HR, he would hold listening sessions with senior career staff. And he said, of course, bonuses and pay raises and things of that nature would be on the table. But he said he's also looking beyond that. He's looking at holistic career things. And that includes looking at telework just beyond the pandemic. There are morale issues. We know that. Morale is a symptom. It's not the root cause of a problem. I would like to work with the census career staff and the staff themselves to understand what are the root causes of job satisfaction and job dissatisfaction. What can we do? All right. And in the meantime, they are not quite finished with the 2020 count. People are waiting for the wrap-up. Where do things stand there, Jory? Fingers crossed the 2020 count will finally be done next month, a little less than a month, actually. The Bureau has plans to release its redistricting data by August 16th. You'll remember that back in April, the Bureau released its apportionment data. These are things that under normal circumstances would have been wrapped up and delivered last year. But of course, the pandemic meant pushing back its timeline time and again. And with this August 16th deadline, this comes just after the Bureau's most recent court battle where the state of Alabama had contested its use of a new statistical method called differential privacy to keep people's data private in this redistricting data. This is something that, of course, the Bureau does with every count, but this is a new method they were testing out. Rob Portman, the ranking member of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, said this is all well and good that this data is on paper, but he says the clock's ticking and he says the Bureau can't postpone this data any further. So without the data, we can't draw the lines. And again, literally, people don't know what districts to run in. Constituents don't know what district they're going to be in. And the lawsuit ended up with the Bureau agreeing to provide this data by August 16th. And that date cannot slip. 
And that's all and well that's, and good for Senator Portman, except that talking to Santos isn't going to do anything because he's not confirmed at the Census Bureau yet. And that gets to the next question, as you, something you mentioned, the 2030 count is planning underway there. And, Jory, how far along are they? Well, it's gotten to the point where the Government Accountability Office is already putting out recommendations of how the 2030 count can go better than this one. And at this point, they're actually looking at a lot of the things that went right and the things that went wrong with the 2020 count. Like I said a moment ago, there were wildfires and natural disasters that made it more difficult for the Bureau to do its non-response follow-up, its ground game, knocking on doors and getting people to fill out the count. The pandemic made it hard to do group quarters counts, so college students in their dorm rooms, senior living facilities, things of that nature. But the one big break the Census Bureau did get was a lot of its technical innovations, things like giving enumerators iPhones and allowing them to do the count that way. And Santos is really keyed in on this. You know, if confirmed, he would stick around until the end of 2026. And so looking at 2030 is something that he's really concerned about. And he says that the technology piece of things would really make a difference in this upcoming decennial count. Because it was also the 2020 census was also the first fully digitized operation. There are a lot of quality indicators that can give clues about efficiencies that heretofore had not been available. So it's critical to take a look at those, to analyze those, and incorporate that. All right, and that's the testimony again from Mr. Santos, nominee for Census Bureau. And Jory, would it be fair to say that the pandemic has already reshaped to some degree how census operates? It certainly has. You know, beyond looking at what telework is going to look like for the Bureau beyond the pandemic. The Bureau is also looking at the timeliness of its data products. And case in point here, the Bureau tried something new in the early stages of the pandemic. It launched a series of weekly pulse surveys that were meant to gauge COVID-19's impact on public health. We got weekly snapshots of data on things like economic security, employment status, food security, and mental health wellness from all across the country here. And so this is data the Bureau has not had prior to this. And so Santos says that he's really keen on making sure that these kinds of things stick around in the Bureau, even after COVID-19 is no longer in the public awareness. And the same committee on the same day also talked about ICE. And who else do they hear from? So they heard from President Joe Biden's pick to run ICE, Ed Gonzalez, who is the sheriff of Harris County, Texas. And of course, the border is very much on the minds of a lot of folks these days. And so he said, if confirmed, he said he would run a an internal review of sort to make sure that violent extremism isn't part of the agency's workforce. And to put that in context a little bit more, the Department of Homeland Security actually announced its own internal review in that same vein in April. And Gonzalez says that's actually something that's playing out now at the state and local level with law enforcement agencies that he works with. I know across the board nationally that many law enforcement agencies are also grappling with this, not only the initial onboarding, but further check-ins throughout their career to make sure that things uh, somehow aren't getting gone sideways in some way or, or no longer fit the mission of the agency. Well, I'm also wondering, Jory, during that hearing, did issues of ICE's mission come up, such as stopping MS-13 from coming into the country? Well, gang violence did come up, but this was something that senators did question about. It also came up about ICE's practices of going undercover in certain circumstances. And, you know, there's a lot of 
questions about how ICE should and shouldn't run its mission. And so Gonzalez says that, you know, no matter what, he's really focused on making sure the agency is run with professionalism in mind. And what about the detainers that are often not cooperated with at the state and local level? Did that come up during the hearing? That did come up. And so that's something that, you know, of course, in his current role as the sheriff of Harris County, that's something he has experience with currently. And he said that, you know, that experience would carry over if confirmed as ICE director. Well, we'll have to see how he did it in his county. Honor them or ignore them. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. 
and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, 
During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.